Tina Desiree Berg, and I'm looking at folks that leave right-wing extremist movements and change their lives and start working on pulling others out of right-wing extremist movements. So today we're talking with uh, Chris Buckley, who is a former white supremacist, uh, white nationalist, um, and he works for an organization called Parents for Peace, and they do interventions with those that are trying to get out of the right-wing extremist movement or with uh, sometimes contacted, I believe, by family members uh, that are concerned about others that are involved and they want to have some sort of an intervention. So this is important work. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, we, we don't just work with white supremacists, though. We work okay. with all all spectrums from Islamism, environmentalism, yeah. eco-terrorism, white supremacy. Uh, we we kind of we work the full spectrum of extremism and ideology. So. Oh, that's fascinating because you're right. Not all extremism is centered on right-wing extremism. There are many forms that that can take. Um, so right. let's talk a little bit about your background, how you came um, to this position. I believe that you were recruited into the KKK while you were in the military. In my time in the movement, I got into uh, the KKK and I became, you know, the second in charge for the entire U.S. I was oh, an Imperial Nighthawk. That's way yeah, up there. I, I, yeah, I was in a an Imperial Nighthawk, which is like second in charge to the to the Imperial Wizard, oh. uh, for the for the LWK and the Georgia White Knights. Um, I'm also a combat veteran and uh, a recovered drug addict. What were some of the factors that led you to become involved with the movement? Um, and then also tell us a little bit about why you left. So. Um, Early on in my childhood, I was uh, I was molested by by a close family member um, for a pretty good period of time from the age of like five till like 12 or 13 till I was old enough or outgrew his desire, whatever it was. So, like, I always had a deep seated hatred towards homosexuality. Okay. Um, it was kind of like a protection factor. Uh, I, I looked at every person in in that lifestyle as the person who did that to me. Um, I guess that's just the way that my my underdeveloped brain yeah. uh, at five to 13, that's just how my brain framed it. And perception was reality to me. Uh, growing up, my, my dad was always kind of a pretty racist individual, a uh, lot of racial slurs at the house and, and negative stereotypes surrounding Latinos, uh, you know, Hispanic, the Hispanic population, immigrant population. Uh, you know, he was also a pretty big alcoholic and, you know, experimented with drugs on and off. And it was always somebody else's fault that dad couldn't keep a job or dad, right. you know, had to get a new job. It was never dad's fault because he stayed out drinking all weekend and slept for two days and missed work or, you know, was unreliable or dependent or couldn't pass a drug test, you know. Right, so right. Um, like growing up and hearing those things, they were always kind of in the back of my mind. Uh, the one control factor to that was like, I had a very diverse group of friends in the, in the community that I, that I lived in. Um, I, I joined the army and, and during my time in, in combat in Afghanistan, I lost a really good friend of mine. And I remember the experience I got of Islam through that really super narrow lens kind of, you know, allowed for the beginning of a hatred to, towards Islam and Muslims in general, because there was never really any positive exposure. Uh, from the time I joined the army, I remember uh, we had just got involved. 9-11 uh, had just happened. The army was re-gearing towards its war in the Middle East. And the frame up was, you know, we dehumanized the, that, that group of people with our language and uh, jargon in the military and, and really referred to them in some negative stereotypes. 
but also in our training. So like, right. you know, the only time I ever really shot at the green pop-up targets were on the qualification range. Every other bit of training that I did was the, the pictures, like the picture targets of like a, a military age man or woman with an RPG or an AK-47 pointed at you. Never really anybody saying, hey, here's a bottle of water or, you know, friendly. So, I mean, like the visual and the language conditioning that this is the enemy, this is what it looks like, this is what you're supposed to do when you see this and how you're supposed to react. Yeah. Kind of just built this this reactiveness, right? This dehumanized, reactive uh, response to you know, local nationals and Middle Easterns in general when we were over there. And then losing losing my really close friend, Daniel Wallace, kind of for the first time since I was a kid, I felt the same hatred towards Islam and Muslims that I felt towards homosexuals. Mm. Um, so fast forward, I come home. Uh, I, I, I'm i in an accident, in a, in a training accident with a Humvee. I broke my back. That was my introduction to opiate painkillers. Oh. Um, so now there's this recipe for disaster. And now because I've had such a severe injury, the military's like, we're going to med board you and put you out. So I go the next two years actively taking painkillers and, and progressing in my addiction. But because I have a prescription, they can't really do anything on UA or urinalysis screenings. And the time comes for ETS or go through med board. And I just chose to go out on my own terms. So I chose not to reenlist. Uh, left the army with 13 years in service as a combat veteran. And then all my accountability disappeared. Mm. All my camaraderie, my friends, the the people that I was in the service with kept on moving through their career and eventually lost contact with everybody, became isolated, alone, and started to cope with the the things that I had been through through the the abuse of prescription pain pills that it progressed into abuse of heroin, abuse of methamphetamines, um, and then I remember that like at the same time I come out, I was going through this whole, like, where do I stand? Like, am I for abortion or am I against abortion? Is there a gray area for abortion? Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Like, how do I want to vote? Am I, you know, am I for tearing down Confederate statues? Am I for leaving them up? Am I yeah. for this? Thing? And like, Society was really going through a change at that period. And I think that we can tie it back to, to my extremism back to that period where every single time you turned around, somebody wanted to point you in a box. Yeah. And like, I never got to decide if I was pro-life or pro-choice or, you know, pro this or, or anti that. Like, I didn't get the choice. People like, you know, you're either this or you're this. And it's like, but no, I'm no not. Like, yeah. No, no gray area. And mm-hmm. finally... I remember I was called a white supremacist and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm so sick of being put in boxes. Um, my wife's sister had really started to experiment with some drugs and, and, you know, an alternative lifestyle and which was cool. Like I didn't care. I, I was using drugs too. And, uh, my dealer one day, he had told me that, uh, he had hooked up with this white girl and she was, you know, she'd do anything for, you know, some, some dope and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, that, you know, he wanted to tell me about it. And I didn't want to hear about it, you know, and it was really pissing me off. So I remember I come home that night and it was him and my sister-in-law sitting on the couch and I just lost it, man. I was like, you know what, man? Like I was in such a drug fueled, like traumatized state that I didn't really have an outlet for. Cause 
you know, I go to the VA. I, I went to the Birmingham VA on a suicide attempt one time and was released two hours later with a, a new bag of pills. Um, so I, I started actively Googling, like, you know, groups out there that were, you know, pro-nationalist, pro-white uh, preservation. I come across some some militia groups and I started to hang out with them, but then I realized like they're really about trying to mess stuff up and, and like attack people. And so I was introduced to another guy who was uh, involved in the Klan and, you know, just actively reached out to the dude online. And, you know, he was a recruiter for the KKK and, you know, it, it really, re it wasn't like, let, let us push this ideology on you. It was really more about like, what are you pissed off about and how can we, how can we manipulate and frame that and take advantage of that to bring you onto our cause and, you know, indoctrinate you into more of what we believe. And it didn't take long after a few barbecues and some parties and a lot of drugs. Uh, I was kind of sympathetic to the cause and I began to get involved. So that's how I got involved with the Klan. I, I, I didn't get involved in the Klan until I got out of the military. Right. Okay. So I really want to be clear about that. Uh, I did have the thoughts and the ideology prior to leaving the military, but I never acted on them until I got out. Gotcha. Um, it was like a moral taboo for me. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't make that, that crossover. But as soon as I was out, it was all, all bets off and, and I was involved like up to my neck. Interesting. Um, the drug aspect is really fascinating too. Is that pretty prevalent in the movement? Um, Certain, certain groups. Uh, there's some, some groups out there that are all about like, body purity and and you know keeping the body pure and, and exercise and working out uh but most of the time most of the body purity groups are like in inside the prison system like aryan brotherhood yeah, uh Aryan nation yeah. pecker woods those guys yeah so like they're real big on like keeping yourself fit keeping yourself worked out none not partaking in drug use but it's easy for them because they're in the prison system i mean chris wildly though pecker woods deal drugs i mean <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you can like there for a while, like when I first got involved in meth, I was dealing meth, but I wasn't doing meth. I see. Okay. Right. Like you never get high on your own supply type of type of thing. Um, but eventually, you know, like I, I started using it and I remember the, the guy that I was buying it off of was like, like, he sat me down and tried to have like a dope head intervention. He was like, look, bro, if you're going to sell dope, you can't sell something you do. Like, you got to sell something that you don't that you don't mess with so that you don't get into your own supply. And that's kind of how the Peckerwoods work is, is, you know, like they 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 deal drugs, but they're forbidden to use them. Okay. That makes uh, sense. And there's really strict consequences for the prison gangs like ABAN, Peckerwood, guys like that, that that do get into their supply. Like there's pretty severe consequences. Um, but outside of the prison system. Right. Like everybody's using everything and you're trading back and forth to get what your plug, your, your drug of choice is. And, mm -hmm. you know, so, I mean, it's just it's 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 very, very lucrative yeah. in, in the drug market. So that makes sense. All right. So what was the turning point then for you? You got to a certain place where you're like, you didn't want to be part of the movement anymore. Or did somebody intervene? Like, how did that happen? There was a lot, like, just like there was a lot of ingredients that got me to the point of committing to the movement. Like, you know, I, I always refer to it as like, it's like baking cupcakes, right? You can have all the right ingredients, but if the temperature ain't right, your cupcakes don't come out. Uh, for me, the, all the ingredients were there. The oven was just right. And, you know, I, 
I, I sprouted into the movement and, and, you know, the same thing with getting out, like all the ingredients, all the, the environment had to be just right. And so I remember like, there was a lot of conflict between me and my wife. Like she was actively pushing for me to get sober, to get away from the movement. She was worried about the safety of our family. And oddly I used her worry about the family safety as a more, prevalent reason to stay involved with the group right because it's like look we need safety we need protection and and that's what the group's for and um eventually she just got tired of it and there was you know she left she took the kids she said look you're either gonna you're gonna work on you you're gonna choose the clan and the drugs or you're gonna choose me and these kids and i remember that she left and i was angry about that so it kind of pushed me further towards the movement but i was already at the point of wanting to get sober because i was miserable yeah. I just didn't know how I was too far involved and, and I'd made a few attempts on my own and always fell back into relapse, back into the addiction. Uh, and I remember my wife, you know, I didn't find out about it until after, but she was like, you know what, if he can Google how to protect the white race and find people in the Klan and militia groups and 3% groups, yeah, maybe I can per- like Google, how do I get somebody out of a hate group? And so that's what she did. And at the time, Google's algorithm was like sending her to the ADL, the Southern Poverty Law Center. But she come across a story from Arno Michaelis okay. and his story, his background of being a hammer skin in the 90s and leaving that's the movement. And yeah. and yeah, and like trying to figure out how to leave the movement on his own. And it's taken him like he's been doing this, this recovery work on himself for over a decade. And she was like. You know, he was the leader of a white power hate band called Centurion. And so she she found a a way to email him. And at the time, he was working with a group called Serve to Unite, him and uh, a a colleague of his, Pardeep Kalika, who I work with extensively now. And the dude's, like, awesome. He's one of the best, like, practitioners and clinicians that I've ever had the pleasure of of observing and working with, especially in this field, since it almost doesn't exist. Right. Um, So... She reached out, she shot him an email and Arno shows up and he comes all the way from Milwaukee to meet wow. me. And it was, it was kind of an intense meeting because like my, my attic brain was like, how do you, you like talk about, talk to people behind my back and men at that, invite them to our home and I'm fine. And Arno just told me, it was like, dude, we got to get you sober, man. And that was the moment that I was like, okay, cool. I'm, my ideology isn't a threat. He's here to help me work on sobriety. We talked about his battle with alcoholism and uh, I really bought into it. And for the next couple of months, Arno really started working with me on my sobriety. Uh, you know, of course I kept relapsing and, and falling back and eventually I caught a drug charge. Uh, and that was, okay. what was, yeah, that was what was needed because I, I asked the judge at Arno's, you know, advice, like ask for treatment. This is your first charge. The first time you've been in trouble, like that judge will help you. If you ask for help, you have to ask for it though. Yeah. So I did. I went in front of the judge and I broke down crying. I was like, I just want to be a dad and a husband again. And and I'm stuck, man. I feel like I'm trying to swim and I just I can't keep my head above water and I, I, I'm sinking and I need help. The judge was like, I, I, I feel for you. He seen that I was a better and he was sympathetic. And he and he told me he was going to release me on bond until I was able to process into the treatment center. And I was oh, like, nice. your honor, I can't like you can't let me leave here today. I'm going to go get hot. The judge was like, all right, well, then I remain due to custody until a treatment bed opens up. And I spent six months in jail waiting for treatment. Wow, it took six months? Uh, we need more beds. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, well, we need a, a, a more effective system to deal with addiction and treat it as a sickness and a, uh, a, a right. disorder rather than a crime. I mean, there is right. criminal aspect to it. There is some criminal like responsibility to it, but I think that we need to overhaul our criminal justice system, like nonetheless. Uh, and that's a, that's a part of it, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah. But eventually I got into the treatment and I, I remembered that I had one month sober and then six months sober and then 90 days, uh, 120 a year. And, you know, at that point I had built a really organic relationship with Arno. Nice. And I really started to, to buy into our friendship and like it was organic, it was natural, it was authentic. And and through the modeling of his behavior and his, you know, involvement with me, I started to find a new way. And and I started to, to contemplate like I need to get out of this. This is awful. And by 2016, I had made the decision to give Arno my robe and my patches. Wow. And we burnt everything in the backyard, man. And And, you know, that was... That was the day I left was uh, it was the fall of 2016. That's remarkable. So it, it seems to me that it almost needs to be uh, the work needs to be done by somebody that's been in the movement, because only people that have been part and parcel to that could really understand uh, what it's about, why you're there, how it affects your mental well-being. I mean, you almost have to live through those experiences. If I had tried to intervene, for example, like you, why would you even listen to me? I have no idea what I'm talking about. So facts yeah um yeah. I, I remember when i went through treatment we had this uh really ignorant substance abuse counselor that had never been addicted to anything and we had a project <laughs> that we had uh, that we had to work on like what are our addictions how are we addicted to it and i remember somebody in the class was like well can you model what you're wanting from us because you know addicts in recovery are kind of aggressive and and up and down on their their right. chemical imbalances right. and so she was like well i've never been addicted to anything so i'll use chocolate for example and i remember i got so mad at that yeah. like so angry There's at no like my core. none and like i remember like i actively tried to get that lady reassigned to a different type of counselor's position right, right. but like yeah, and no, then i, need, I, I need yeah it. and and I remember coming needed, out of oh, that. Oh, sorry, my bad. I thought you. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Why? Well, I was going to say you almost need it with the uh, extremist stuff too, right? Only people that have. Yeah. Been, I mean, I think it's kind of parallels that in a way. Yeah. So it's funny that you bring that up because I remember, like, it was like sobriety was really hard for me. Like, I mean, like I had to go to places that, like, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. Doors that I had locked off and blocked and bolted and like never wanted to open again, like the molestation, losing Wallace. Yeah losing you know the relationship with my father the 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 verbal and the physical abuse from him uh witnessing it towards my mom and you know i i just like there was a lot of trauma that i had to dig through and yeah. i started to wonder and i remember one day i asked miriam and arno and pardeep and i said look guys like i feel like i'm still addicted to the ideology uh -huh. like i'm addicted okay. to that and I was like, is it possible to be as addicted to an idea as it is to being addicted to a substance? And like, nobody could really tell me yes or no. I mean, that same, like, very unrelatable substance counselor uh, was available for a talk. And I was like, hey, look, can I be addicted to an ideology or a thought process the same way I'm addicted to substances? And she's like, no, absolutely not. Uh so I remember I tried an experiment because I wasn't satisfied with that. So I printed out all of the the symptoms and the red flags, the warning signs of substance abuse. 
like early and, and middle ways. And then I printed off the same list of my observed red flags and, and warning signs for ideology and extremism and, and radicalization. I remember I didn't label them and I just set them down in front of her. And she was like, what, what is this? And I was like, can you tell me which list is which? Yeah. He goes, they're both substance abuse lists. Like, I mean, like they're both warning signs of substance abuse. Like, what's the point? And I was like, no, one of them is what I've identified as warning signs of extremism. Yeah. And she, I remember she kind of like, she processed that. And because of that experience, I was like, I have to dig deeper and I have to do more research and I have to really follow this through now. Like I have an obligation. Um, so I formed a theory. I, I remember I talked to a guy over at Yale, a neuroscientist over at Yale, and he confirmed it. He was like, dude, the same parts of our brain that fire during addiction are our amygdala, our nucleus accumbent, our hippocampus, our prefrontal, our bilateral cortex, like all that reptilian part of our brain that Fires is fired up. on wow. by addiction and substances are the same part of our brains that fire and light up on triggers and, and you know, revenge craving type of, of processes. And I was like, so if that's possible, if that's the case, then it should be possible to treat that process with like the same style that we treat like an upper or an amphetamine addiction yeah. with like this moral cognitive approach to like self-exploration, self-pro like the self-guided and self-paced program. And that led to the the program that, that I created called the TRP program or trauma and recovery program uh, for military. And then I remember I met Sammy Wicks. He was a really cool dude. And he reached out. He was like, can we do this for law enforcement? Cause he was a cop. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely. So we created a, a law enforcement version a first responders uh, version of trauma and recovery program and piloted at Aurora PD. And it was great. And it was really successful. So, uh, and then it led me to doing a trauma stress studies with Dr. Basil Vanderkolk, uh, through Petsy and the trauma research foundation that lasted like a year. Right. And, uh, like, the, the parallels between substance abuse and ideological extremism, radicalization are processes yeah. are so parallel yeah. that like, yeah. So, I mean, like that's, that's kind of how the whole thing went down. And, you know, after meeting Arno, Arno introduced me to Miriam during his, his first initial contacts with me and Miriam watched me for like two years and was like, Chris, would you like to volunteer at Parents for Peace? Like, it's a really small organization. We're working with helping people get out of hate groups. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. But like, yeah, whatever I have to do to to, to be a, a help and take back some of the negative that I put into this world. Yeah. Um, and I volunteered for a few years. And then finally, like, you know, we got some funding. And Miriam was like, Chris, I want to offer you a job. Like, nice. you're really gifted at this. And so, yeah, I've been with Parents for Peace ever since. And, uh, awesome. you know, I mean, it's. That's so the premise here, I think, is that hate, hateful ideology, extremist ideology is an addiction in the same way that that drugs can be. And once you get sort of on that road, on that path and you're constantly surrounded by people that are also addicted to the same hateful ideology. Right. And you're just reinforcing and normalizing uh, these things. And I think we see that happening in social media, like Telegram chat rooms, I think, is like the latest version of that, where you see, you know, the neo-Nazi chat rooms where they're all, you know, yeah. together. In that. So I think that's part and parcel. Um, so what I found really, really fascinating about uh, Parents for Peace is that they look at extremist ideology as a public health issue. And I think that's an interesting perspective, one that I have not seen before. 
And it does make sense um, because yeah, extreme, for sure. yeah, extremism is becoming is increasing. It's becoming more normalized. Um, political violence is becoming more normalized. So we for definitely sure, yeah. have an issue. We definitely have an issue we have to address. So um, talk a little bit more about why it's a public health um, crisis and why more people should be concerned about that. And um, also part of the program that you guys have set up uh, that you've helped create. Yeah, so I, I think the, the basic easiest way to, to frame it is with a disease model, right? Uh, diseases are progressive unless arrested, they become fatal. Uh, with the prevention process, you have a prevention model, an intervention model, and a long-term care model, right? So the goal is to prevent the disease, period, which is why we do boosters, inoculation, uh, you know, the, the, the lifestyle choices to prevent those diseases. Uh, and that could be from like diabetes to cancer to, you know, just the common cold. Right. Um, because we look at extremism as a virus or a cancer on society. Uh, and then you have the intervention model. When somebody does get sick, then you have to intervene on the disease and, and get that person healthy. And then the, the last part is the long-term care and recovery model from that disease and prevention in the future. So when we frame it as a public health model and a public health approach, we frame it in that same light. Yeah. We have to have preventative processes, which my, my, my colleague and, and you know partners over at Serve to Unite uh, Arno, Pardeep, uh, have really done a great job at prevention of like the, the susceptibility to extremist ideologies, trauma processing, uh, integration with other people that normally you wouldn't be able to interact with as much uh, to kind of build this resiliency to the ideology of extremism. The next phase is like the phase that I'm actively involved in, which is the the intervention phase yeah. when somebody does become involved in extremism and does start to adapt an ideology and be pulled into certain groups, whether it be Al Qaeda, Antifa, white supremacy, you know, eco-terrorism, then there's a process that we use to kind of intervene, separate the person from the ideology and begin to identify, isolate, and repair the traumas that led them to be susceptible to that ideology in the first place. Mm -hmm. The same way we would with substance abuse, right? We use substance abuse as now a, a public health approach. And the strides that we've made aren't where we need to be, but we're getting there. And we're doing the same thing. We're following that same approach with, you know, mental health and, and extremism. So, yeah. and then the, the following phase is, you know, the, the long-term care. So once we get somebody out of a movement, or out of a group or an ideology, we still have that obligation to build this network of care around them through their family, their loved ones, counseling, substance abuse treatment, long-term cares with that, as well as ourselves to still maintain contact with the family, the person in, in question, and really help to keep them moving forward in a positive way so that they can not only reintegrate into society in a positive way, but Lord willing, actually become the agent for change in their community right such as like me right like i use my process as a a, a model for success right we don't want to just get somebody out of extremism we want to send them back to be the agent to change the the counter voice of the extremist narrative to pull people and help people out of that movement before law enforcement get involved before there's you know, God forbid, a life lost or, or a violent action taken against uh, a community. So, th so that's our goal. 
Um, and with the TRP program that we created, TRP, it follows that recovery model of the public health crisis with substance abuse. And, you know, it's loosely based off of the ideology that we could treat substance abuse and extremism in the same way through a non-medicated, you know, approach of like cognitive reform, cognitive introspective uh, treatment towards, you know, the trauma, the underlying cause. Because in this in this country and, and, you know, the world abroad, it's really easy to focus on the what somebody's doing. Right. They're involved in extremist ideology. They're they're acting out against this group or that group. But it's really hard for us to tap into our inner compassion and be like, why? Why are they doing this? And it's really easy to be angry and to lash out at extremists. It really is. I mean, like yeah. they're the most <laughs> undesirable people to have in your community. And and in no way am I saying that we should be empathetic towards extremists, but well, we really a second. Get- um, I don't know that in a way, I think some of the folks that I've talked to um, that used to be in extremist movements have mentioned that part of them leaving the movement sort of required that they stopped othering other people that they were parts of groups that they hated. And that that happened through contact with these individuals and seeing that these individuals were kind to them. So perfect example. Is that that like a form of empathy? I don't know, but I I think that what I meant by, by not, not like, you know, we we've got to like society and 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 in their whole like there are gonna people that watch this to go oh so we have to we have to victim we have to make the the extremism the victim (laughs) the the white supremacist has to be the victim and that's not yeah yeah but i I think that yeah i think that there there's almost a prerequisite of it creates a cognitive opening when they meet the other and they meet the them and that them isn't what they said they were so like the meeting between myself and Dr. Haval Kelly out of Atlanta um, was that cognitive opening because like he was a Muslim, he was an immigrant, he came right after 9-11 and he was everything I said that I hated in this country. And then I met him and like, we're brothers now, like we're, we're best friends. Like, you know, we're, we're the same age, you know, he came with nothing and made it to a hundred. He's a, he's a cardiologist at, at wow. uh, Northside hospital That's in Atlanta. Impressive. That's I come out of the military with the opportunity to have a hundred and I fell to negative a hundred. And now I'm back to like 50 and people look at me at me and they're like, you know, Hey, you know, great job on leaving the clan. And what people don't realize is that the work that it takes to get out of these movements is so exhausting. Yeah. Like telling your story over and over again, like it just keeps this open wound constantly. And I want to advocate for the formers out there that are actively involved in telling their stories and, you know, just tell people to be gentle with these these guys and, and girls. Like there's a, a, a really raw wound that they have to revisit every time they tell their story. And, you know, it, it's, it really takes a toll on them mentally and emotionally and and. You know, when you're dealing with people who are leaving the movement, just be gentle. That is yeah. the best weapon for hate is compassion. And I don't know that I would be here if it weren't for the compassion of people like Arno and Pardeep and Dr. Kelly and, you know, Miriam and, and the people at Parent for Peace and, and other formers. Yeah. Like, you know, Chuck Leak and, and those guys that uh, that had have been through this path and kind of were there to be like, hey, homie. You're going to go through some stuff and, and we want you to be prepared for it. So like, right. 
it was it was really helpful to have the formers and the role that formers play in de-radicalization as you guys call it um is invaluable it's like the role that that recovering addicts play in recovery for substance abuse yeah, like yeah. without that group of people it would be exponentially more difficult right. to make that connection and to guide these people out of movements. Hundred percent, because you would have no credibility. You know, I can't right. really talk what I can't talk about what it's like to be part of a neo-Nazi movement because I've never been a neo-Nazi, right? So, so it's easy for me to be like, yeah, that's really fucked up. Why would you hate people for no reason? But it's just not that simple. It's more complex, and I think it's a conversation that we need to have as a society because. You know, these. this is a group that's been increasing um, for a myriad of reasons, and uh, we have to find a solution because I don't think all of these people are necessarily, you know, uh, trash, so to speak, that we should dis discard them or whatnot. I don't think that that's helpful, um, and I don't think you can necessarily ignore the public health aspect of that. So I was really... I was really thrilled when I saw that you had this uh, version of how to deal with it because it's it's probably something that's going to sound strange to a lot of folks, right? Well, yeah, because it's it's something that we haven't tried before, and right, right. you and know, if it works, I mean, great. I mean, yeah, and if it doesn't, we've started somewhere, right? Yeah. And like that's a promise I made to my son. I, I I remember looking at him and realizing that I was allowing my children to inherit my hate, and that wasn't fair to them. And I remember I made a promise to my son when he was four and I was like, look, man, I, I can't promise you that I can do anything to stop the way that, that, that extremism is progressing in this country. But for so long, for the last 250 years, we've looked away and been like, we'll let the next generation take care of that. Like that's kind of sensitive. And, and I'm not doing that. Like I refuse to put on to the next generation what I can start today and what I can really be an agent of change and at least start the blueprint. Right. Like, yeah at least get the ball rolling on like, Hey, this was working. This wasn't, this is what we can do to, to, to activate uh, a conversation. And I think that to your point of like, yeah, it's easy for people who aren't extremists. I'm going to put my quotes up there to look at extremists and say, Oh, that's really fucked up. How can you hate another person for feeling some way that you don't? But I think that I would respond to those people that say, oh, yeah, it's really fucked up. Fuck those guys. They're extremists. They need to be eradicated. That they've adopted the same us versus them mentality that, that an extremist has adopted. And they've dehumanized the extremist. They've dehumanized the person who's actively suffering and going through shit that they need to they need help with. And we've done the same thing with them that this country's done with addicts in 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 pointing them out, making fun of them calling them and trash and dehumanizing them so that it doesn't feel so bad to openly, you know, attack and, and belittle them. Uh, and, and the really hard thing to do would be to get off of that really high horse that people are on and say, how can I help these people? How can I become an agent for change in my community rather than just sit here and talk about how fucked up they are? What can I do? Right? Like yeah. that's the hard thing. And, and like, I don't even I don't even try to have that conversation with people who are like they're trash, they're scum. That's that's my response. Well, what are you doing to help? Right? Like and, and leave it at that because I I really focus Can I ask you a question about um is is shaming some of these folks an effective tool though? I mean Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It just creates a further divide okay. from the community that they're attacking. So you're pushing them farther away. 
I mean, think about what happens to the drug addict. They're already shameful. Look, these guys who are involved in this movement are already, 90% of them are already miserable. Nobody wants to be in an extremist movement, right? It's a coping tool. And when you shame them and you you berate them and you publicly humiliate them, it furthers the us versus them mentality. The same way it furthers the us versus them mentality for people to publicly shame and, and attack them. And they create the system of polarization. The same way with the right and the left politically. Republicans are doing it to Democrats, creating this further us versus them divide. Democrats are doing it back to Republicans furthering the us versus them divide and it's caused a situation where families can't even have dinner at thanksgiving or christmas together right Right. like and that's there's definitely a polarization happening in in political parties yeah there's very yeah and the same thing happening um yeah yeah, that makes sense to me what you're saying um but of course the other aspect of that is what do you do about the dangerous ones that are going to commit hate crimes or whatnot how how do you square those two things together i mean it's complicated it really is. Uh, and I think that the way to go about that is to you have to actively try to be part of the solution instead of sitting back and being the Monday morning quarterback and the criticizer about it. Uh, I, I know that just through my work at Parents for Peace, there's so many groups and, and agencies and and nonprofits that are really coming together to be part of the solution and actively work out how to identify the threat and the danger uh, and the individuals who are susceptible to commit acts of violence from the people who are not right. Yeah. Like, okay. so, I mean, like you just really, I mean, my response is going to be the same all the way through, like be part of the pro- be part of the solution. Don't further the problem. Right? right. And, and I know that some people mean well, but like, there's a lot that can be done no matter what your skill set is on how to prevent extremism in your community. Uh, speak out against it wherever you see it. Um, actively try to change the narrative that that person has through compassion and and love and warmth and and try to to build a natural friendship with that person because that's really hard to do, right? That's it's, uncomfortable. Well, I, it is uncomfortable. I mean, I think it's I think it, it's a difficult space for those that are the victims of hate crimes to like. I I don't feel like I could comfortably ask those individuals to extend a hand uh, to like a Nazi, for example. Like I just couldn't do that because obviously that would be dangerous for them. But on the flip side, I, I do see your point. Like this is what, yeah. I, it's, hard, it's hard for me to. So I'm just reminded you, of a story. Like, but it's, yeah. but we have to understand where, like this is why I wanna talk to folks like you because we need to understand, yeah. we need to understand how these things work, right? How people get to these places and positions and, and whatnot and how we can, you know, turn it around. So. So, so yeah, that, I mean, that requires maybe rethinking, you know, certain things, I suppose. Yeah, we've got, look, hate and extremism is a learned behavior. And in order it's to challenge it, behavior. we have to, yeah. okay. we, we have to, we have to, uncha- we have to challenge the behavior and we challenge the behavior by modeling. Right. And okay. I, I understand how hard, how extremely like a person that's affected by, by extremism, like they have to heal. Um, and, and I'm reminded, like, the best example of that is, you know, my, my, my colleague, Pardeep Kalika, you know, his, uh, his father was taken from him at the Sikh Temple shooting in uh, oh Oak God. Creek, Wisconsin, by Wade Michael Page. And the person that came to, to help me out of my extremism and, and substance abuse 
was a member of the same gang and reached out to Arn or reached out to Pardeep and was like, I, I don't know what I need to do, but I want to help you heal. And that relationship is the example. It is the standard for how people who are affected by hate crimes can heal and, and move forward, but also how people who might not have committed a hate crime, but been a, a part of a group that did commit a hate crime, like they can, they can come together and they can coexist and they can heal together. Uh, that's actually one of the, the processes of, of our recovery program is to try to find somebody that you might have harmed and either directly or indirectly and wherever it might not create further harm, reach out and actively try to, to, you know, make a connection and, and help that person, uh, to really progress forward. So, I mean, like it's a really in-depth and intense program. Um, it's not for, I mean, it's, it's a really down and dirty, emotional, ugly program, but so is extremism. So We have yeah. to, you know, I mean. No, you're not wrong on that. Um, you had missed, I do want to ask you this because I have a fascination with how some of these uh, groups are now coalescing together and kind of you see members that are multiple, they're affiliated with multiple extremist groups, right? Not just one. Um, yeah. I, I'm noticing that there's some crossover between militia groups, like you had mentioned the three percenters, um, Oath Keepers, whatever, uh, and, yeah. and Nazi groups now, which is kind of interesting to me because one you know the right-wing militias are generally more just anti-government uh right they haven't really necessarily leaned into like any sort of white supremacy uh feelings before but that's starting to change what do you think is the driver of that so i i think that it's a very simple concept of the enemy of my enemy is my friend i see uh white supremacist and and white nationalist are also anti-government anti-establishment uh so when you look at bodies to to you know plan for this this war this civil war that's going to come against like militia groups and the government they're like okay we can uh we can deal with the white supremacy later we'll allow them to support our cause and be a part of our movement and we'll deal with them later because they're the lesser of the threat, right? They don't have tanks and, and, and an air force. So that's the kind of, that's the motto. And you're seeing, you're seeing groups that, uh, that would have never participated together before actively come together. Like you'll see the burning crosses and the burning swastikas at white supremacist and KKK rallies now. Yeah. Uh, and you're seeing groups come together with that motto. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, and we're, we're going to make them more know. dangerous in your mind. I mean, I think it gives them more population. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the groups are dangerous to begin with. And, right. and I think that the more, radical the ideology becomes the more it evolves the more dangerous it becomes and i mean to take any way anything away from the threat of white supremacy and and uh nationalism in this country would be a disservice to the the work that i do i mean it's it's a very dangerous uh threat to this country and let's talk about the dangerous aspects i'm also curious about leaving the movement i'm i would imagine that if you've been part of you know some sort of a neo-nazi group that leaving that group is very dangerous because they don't want the other members to KKK as well. Right. So some of these folks, you know, they're not out in the public. Um, their membership isn't something that's known. So is it dangerous? Have you found in your, uh, in your work that some folks are uh, threatened by the groups that they're leaving and that becomes part and parcel to the intervention? 
So I think that there's a two side to that. Like one, yes, absolutely. Uh, while I was involved in the movement, we had uh, a local police officer involved, uh, yeah. some school teachers. Like there's, yeah. and they didn't want their their identity known. Uh, but I mean, like when you leave the group, um, you you've just gotta you've gotta face it, and it's super scary. It's it's. Uh, I mean, like I was, I was assaulted pretty good. Um, you know, I don't I don't like to. To talk about it but i mean i was i was beaten probably within an inch of my life and just left in the woods uh i was actually found i was found by a rabbit hunter a uh, guy who was running his rabbit dogs uh i was i was kind of like tied to a tree i had some broke ribs broke collarbone uh i was i had some pretty nasty cuts on my head uh, wow. you know fractured my orbital size so i mean like yeah I, I was beaten pretty severely when when i left and it's all part of the fear tactic like you know if you leave you're gonna suffer this fate at the hands of your brothers uh and it's kind of a fear tactic to keep people from leaving the movement but on the same token like when i left i never stopped speaking out ousting members of the group and doxing them to the you know for you. To, the, to the authorities and it's like you know I, there's not a man out there in this world that i'm afraid of you know, I mean, I'm more afraid of myself and what I'm capable of than I am any man out there. Right. So, I mean, like, and I had to lead by example. I had to, I, had, I was the only one really doing it that I knew of. And like, I had to kind of stand up to the group and stand up to the threats. And eventually the threats stopped. They just lost interest because I wasn't responding or playing into the threats. Uh, you know, I still get random, you know, you're a yeah. race trader, yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that you know, messages on Facebook and Twitter, but I mean, Twitter and Facebook ain't a real place. So like, right. I just respond with, you know, see me when you see me, man. Like, yeah, pull up. See me when you see me. <laughs> You're like, all right, up, let's do like, it. Uh, you know, yeah, because I know and, that is probably part of it. And then you mentioned there was a cop involved. I, I have found that that's not um, out of bounds. Like there definitely is a link between right-wing extremism of that nature and local law enforcement sometimes i mean i'm not saying it's the majority of cops but it definitely does exist um, yeah, yeah which is something does, we uh, also need to look at it that's really problematic i think um yeah i i think it is and and i think that uh that's a really sensitive subject to to get into i would i would implore the the leadership at these police departments these sheriff departments these local and and state level uh entities to really you know do some digging and some some background checking on their officers and yeah. while i like I, while i will go on record say that the percentage of law enforcement officers that are involved in right-wing extremism or white supremacy is such a fraction of a fraction but the the results and the consequences of those people being allowed to practice yeah. law enforcement and still be a part of these movements are yeah. unfathomable like you know, you look at you look at how the the profiling and the right. the way they abuse their power. It's it's it's, bad. it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, it's bad. Yeah. It's like you, you don't need a majority of anything to cause a lot of harm, right? That's sort of the case, right. and it's the case with any sort of extremist group. Um, you know, like they're not the majority of the population, but that doesn't mean they can't wreak havoc on civil society. Right. Clearly, they can. I don't think January sixth happened in a vacuum. You know, no, January 6th has been happening for years and years and years. And, like, you know, one of the, like, I have a really opposite, like, I I admit 100%, like, January 6th was fucking scary, man. Like, the fact that that could happen and everybody was so unprepared, yeah. you know, the multiple 
uh, I'll use the word that was used by by both parties, the multiple systemic failures of January 6th. Uh, and the fact that most of those people there were veterans was scary. And and like, while I don't think that the, those people were there to really harm anybody, had they been, those veterans would have brought body armor and guns. Yeah. Uh, but the show of force was, was scary. And the fact that that can happen again, and we need to take measures to, to really go above and just identify terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. Like we need to, we need to slap a label on them. And, you know, there was a lot of push to Trump to do this with, you know, Oath Keepers, Boogaloo Boys, white supremacy, the Klan, not neo-Nazi movements, but like, the same push is on the current administration to do the same thing. And yeah. we've seen the exact same response of nothingness, <laughs> nothingness right? Exactly. And, and we hold one group to a standard that we don't hold the other group to. And right. while I'm a libertarian and I think that both parties are just full of absolute shit, um, <laughs> it's, it's open. It's obvious. It's obvious yeah. that Republicans will hold Democrats to a standard that they won't follow and Democrats yeah. will hold Republicans to a standard that they're sports. obviously not following. It's, it's yeah. turned into team sports. It's ridiculous. They, they will it's excuse, tribalism. It is. They will excuse bad behavior in their team, but not For in sure. their team. And it's, it's, and it's they won't, a problem. I agree with you. They won't hold the same standards to their team that they right. push onto the other team. Like, yeah. where is the designation of, terror, of, of domestic terrorist organizations? Where are we designating these groups? Like, I mean, we really need to we really need to hold our elected officials accountable. Yeah. Right. And I don't disagree. It it's it's gotten. I don't disagree. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah, it didn't. It happened over decades of, of just yeah. frustration. It's been building. Yeah. And I think there's a frustration that exists in the country because neither political party is responding to the needs of the majority of Americans. They're responding to their donor class. Um I think Absolutely. part of parcel to the conversation is also the rabid in income inequality in the country. I don't think we can continue to let that fester. So there we, are we definitely, there's definitely underlying factors that are happening um, economically and politically that are, are yeah. uh, sort of egging the extremists on. I, I think that that's sort of the root of what we have to get to as a society. But the problem is, as you're saying, that neither neither party really wants to deal with it. They just want to ignore right. it. Right. And and then you look at the media that, that pushes the divide of, yeah. of Americans, like, you know, yeah. this this pro-racial divide and this pro, you know, economic class divide, this pro-political divide. It yeah. doesn't matter what news outlet you turn on TV, there's a narrative there's and a there's narrative. A, a push. And, you know, yeah. I think that it's it's really it's a tough situation to navigate. It's these are grassroots movements, and there has to be grassroots responses to the movements yeah. to kind of, of neutralize the effect that, that the news media, Fox News, MSNBC, CNN has on the effect of of our our. Yeah, no, citizens. cable news has has just not been helpful. I think that uh, you know oftentimes the narratives that they're putting forth aren't true. They're, they're, there's no commitment to veracity, but they're also sort of polarizing for the country. Um, and it's, yeah. I agree with you, it's part and parcel to the problem. Also, you have a lot of media folks that aren't experts in the areas that they're necessarily reporting on. Like I, um, you know, I was talking to Andy Campbell from the Huffington Post and we were having a discussion about how sometimes these journalists, they'll interview like a, a right wing extremist who is both a neo Nazi and a proud boy. He's got a proud boy tattoo. He's, you know, I've seen him do videos in front of swastikas. This guy, this guy's a, a very extreme person. 
And yeah. he's like telling this person that they're, oh no, it's just a drinking club. I'm not a racist. And you're like, and this person, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I so- love it, man. I love it. And and that's another thing too, is I, I would implore people who are concerned about extremism in this country to really just get involved and do some research, right? Yeah, like yeah. stop sensationalizing it. Stop pushing identity politics. Uh, as reporters, like where did the standards go? Yeah. Um, reporters and journalists are, are allowing these big networks to tell them what to report on and how to report on it. And yeah. like, there's a few really good journalists out there still that, that report honestly and openly. And, you know, we, we need to get back to that. Right. But like sometimes that, 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 so I agree with you. And sometimes that re- doesn't require giving both sides equal time and equal measure, right? Sometimes right. your job is checking the guy that's standing in front of you and telling you a lie, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that one of the, the biggest things that I've been advocating on for years is releasing these fucking manifestos yeah. and pictures of these damn school shooters and these committers of mass violence. Stop sensationalizing these fucking guys. Yeah. Stop showing their pictures on the news. Stop fucking really their manifestos are fucking released sooner than the victims names and pictures. Yeah. It's bullshit. It's, yeah. it shows you just how, just where the narrative lies, right? Because it's the job of the media to sensationalize the shooter and get the next one's attention. And I think that there's almost a criminal aspect of this. Yeah. Those those manifestos, those weapons, those shooters' pictures should go into a classified document. Don't give them any credit. Don't give them any glory. Yeah, because that's what Focus they're looking the for. Victim. A lot of them that's want exactly the attention it, and the glory. Yeah, you see them talking yeah. about, you know, in fact, there's... they're talking about each other. They're <laughs> leaving in their manifestos the, the previous shooter. That's... And it's like, yeah, we still released that manifesto to talk about. Right. So the next kid's like, this is how I, I get my point across. This is how I make my statement. You know, it, yeah, it, no, it, no, that's no. a really touchy subject for they me. They lionize, man. you know, like Dylan Roof or something, you know, like he's, you know. Yeah, they, they idolize him. And, yeah. And the media on both sides allow that. They allow this person to, we're showing pictures of the shooter and him and releasing his manifesto for the world to read before we ever even know who the victims are. Yeah. Right? That's a problem. I, I would love to spend as much time on the victims of Uvalde and the families that were damaged and destroyed over yeah. what happened and, and the backstories of these children that were taken from us over the shooter bro like we played the shooter entering the school and the cops messing up more than we even like we're not even talking about the victims no more but we're still talking about the shooter we're still talking about uvalde and the cops like it's bullshit man and and the people that put the token for like the arguments over uh, you know gun reform laws it's like that's all the that's that's what they use it for they politicize in a way yeah that's it don't disagree and i think that anybody who can push that narrative is so full of shit they can't smell their self focus on the victims focus on reaching out to the families and be like how can we come together and surround this individual and and get them through this fucking tragedy that they've experienced right let's not glorify the shooter in the and and the manifesto and that's that's my two cents on it right i mean there's a way i think there's a way to report on these things without doing exactly that so and it is a balance and it requires um it requires not sensationalizing something i think you know have yeah. a discussion about like, okay, so this guy was a white supremacist. He said these three words here. You don't have to publish the whole thing. Just make it clear to people that this is where this guy was coming yeah. from. 
that's you know but when you get to the point where you're lionizing these extremists they want that right you you you're right they feed off of it and it just feeds into this uh I mean, you think about it, for example, like for comparison, look at what we're doing with Jeffrey Dahmer and serial killers in this country. Look yeah. at how much like sensationalization. Wait till the next serial killer pops up. And he's like, I was inspired by Jeffrey Dahmer. I remembered watching the series on Netflix and like just really bonded and identified. So it's like, you know, we can look at what another person does. Absolutely. But in the process of that, we have to look at where we're contributing to it. Yeah, 100%. As a society. I don't disagree, Chris. Um, any parting words? Um, anything we didn't discuss that you think is important about your program? Yeah, I mean, like, I think that one of the most important things is that we have one of the we have the only non-governmental funded helpline oh. in, in in the United States, uh, okay. and you know, people can reach out to us at you know at our helpline. We're not connected to the government. We don't report to the FBI. Uh, we're not connected to law enforcement. We're That's just important. doing the so work. So it's safe. You know, that is interesting because, again, this is something I never would have considered. It is important to have a helpline or a hotline that isn't uh, connected to government funding or the government because these people need to be feel like they can safely approach you for right. help without being yeah. like, you know, having an FBI dossier opened on you for being an extremist. That is really huge, actually. Um what is that number? Are you? Can you say what it is if somebody's listening yeah, to Yeah, for this? sure, man. Uh, it's one eight four 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 nine peace And, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, encourage anybody that's having any struggles or, or, you know, concerns about a loved one or themselves that just really need help and reach out to us. And uh, we're, we're always there. We're 24-7. It's a free service. Uh, that's the service we provided, our nonprofit. So, uh, with that being said, we are a nonprofit and uh, we Can get our money donations? from donations. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, uh, visit our website, check us out, reach out if there's anything that you would like to get involved with or, or just help us out. Uh, the website's www. The, the parents, the number four piece.org. Excellent. Chris, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. I think uh, people will be illuminating, find it illuminating. And I know it's probably difficult to have to repeat these things over and over again. It's like sort of reliving trauma, but um, you're, you're very brave to do that, to do the work you do. Um, and it's much appreciated that you spent some time with us today. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I, I just hope that, that the conversation we had today can help somebody else, uh, whether it be help them get involved in the, the work that we do or, help them reach out to somebody in their community who might be struggling. Like, you know, just, you never know what, what kind of people you're going to touch and what kind of change you're going to have. And this, I just hope that it reaches the person that needed, that needs it to be reached to. So hundred percent. And sometimes that's just other people having an understanding of what's happening, you know, like how, how you become an extremist and why, why we need to look at how we're, you know, addressing that as a society. So thanks again.